Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Precision Microcast with your host, I, Adam Demuth, and Joshua Hacko. Today we'll be talking about books on precision principles, three Japanese grinder manufacturers, and our precision problems in the workshop. We hope you enjoy episode 8 of the Precision Microcast. So this week on our history segment, it's less of a history segment and more of a book report. Uh, Adam and I both love reading about precision stuff. That's no surprise. And so we both independently got books that more or less talk about the same thing. Um, my book was called Foundations of Ultra Precision Mechanism Design. And you might have seen it in my Instagram stories uh, if you follow us on Instagram. And I've spent the last three or four weeks... Um, really going through it step by step and seeing what this book has uh, over, I guess, other similar types of books. And I guess that's one thing we'll touch on. A lot of these ultra-precision or precision books, they do end up covering a bunch of the same content, but those little tiny uh, sentences or uh, paragraphs that differ often contain the information that's um, most rich. And uh, this book was, uh, it's, it's, it's tough because it's, uh, it's very equation heavy. Uh, it's very uh, theorem heavy. Uh, it's more, it reads more like an engineering textbook than it does a, uh, I don't know, something like uh, Foundations of Mechanical Accuracy where there's a lot of pictures, I guess. Or, um, But surprisingly, that actually appealed to me. I thought that that was a quite an interesting way of approaching the ultra precision topic especially when you look at the equations that they used and um, you start analyzing these equations from an engineering side and you say well if for example mass tends higher that's the dominating part of this equation so if you reduce mass it has a greater effect than I don't know reducing the rigidity of the, the material or something like that and uh, that's why I think this book, The Foundations of Ultra Precision Mechanism Design, is probably more suited to a uh, engineer looking at design work rather than a machinist or toolmaker looking at um, sort of shop-related work uh, or bettering their own understanding of, of precision. There's probably books that do a better job. Uh, but what about your book, Adam? My book was Exact Constraint, Machine Design Using Kinematic Principles by Douglas B. Blanding. Uh, I really kind of like this book because uh, it's it's almost closer to a booklet or an infograph. It's more picture-heavy than a lot of these academic texts. Um, and... It does a really, really good job using approachable demos. So most of the kinematic mechanisms featured in this book, I could make with a relatively small build materials on McMaster or Masumi. It's a lot of washers, springs, and ball bearings. And so I think the designs are very approachable. Uh, it gives you the math behind them if that's what you're after. But it, it also just kind of gives you a lot of good illustrations and ways to apply them into what you're trying to do. On top of all that, it uh, it has a good bit of info about living hinges. So I think if uh, 3D printing is your game and you want to start incorporating foldable prints into your design or even inserting steel locators for kinematic work, uh, this would be a really good one to pick up. It's a pretty good value. It's a lot cheaper than most of the uh, the college-style textbooks. So I really enjoyed flipping through it and reading it. Did the book talk about the sort of fundamental precision uh, design concepts like kinematic mounts and flexures and material science? It goes through a lot of the major kinematic mounts, Um most of which, I think if that's what you're looking to learn, I would suggest you not buy anything and just go to Baltech's website. Yeah. In my opinion, they have the best collection of all that info. But uh, it, it it's uh, a little hodgepodgey 
Uh, they go through a little bit of everything. Um, that I think that's why I enjoyed it so much. It wasn't a view under the microscope. It was kind of a step back and look at the whole field. And so when you got the book, what actually drew you to getting that specific book? Uh, I was just looking for something to read, really. Um, and Amazon had suggested it because I had bought a previous book on flexures, which is the opposite. It was it was uh, the math behind flexures, how to figure the forces of them and such. And uh, it was it was quite interesting and revealing, um, but it it wasn't a fun read. I'll say that. Mm. Uh, whereas this is like your almost a coffee table book kind of approach, where you can just kind of pick up a quick chapter here and there, flip through it, look at the cool illustrations. Yeah, I I think a lot of these books you sort of find them either like you did. Or you find them from bibliographies, uh, from other books, and they're self—not not really self-referential, but they're in a scene that they just have a bunch of other books that talk about the same sort of stuff. And then, yeah, that's how I sort of found my book. It was just in a bunch of references that I'd uh, that I'd seen from other books, and yeah, it seems to be like um, sort of like the polar opposite in terms of presentation of content. Um, to yours because i don't think i think there's maybe about 10 pictures in my book (laughs) just about every page has an illustration you're a neanderthal well yeah Uh, a lot of the times in my opinion some of these uh books about flexures or kinematics the illustrations really fall short um they don't Mm. where these are really well done uh you could tell what each piece of hardware is uh not much is left to the imagination but you're definitely right. If you do want to go deep, um, Bolt, that Boltex website is is incredible. The white papers they have are absolutely fascinating. The worst illustrations. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, the worst illustrations, but the best sort of knowledge. Uh, yeah, I feel like they're done on paint, <laughs> MS Paint. Some of them are hand-drawn, I believe. Yeah, napkin style. Yeah. And... Um, Another good white paper source is um, the Precision Instrument Company. Yes. Um, they've got a lot of stuff and they've published their research and they've done a lot of stuff in, in conjunction with universities. and They have some uh, neat wall posters. I wouldn't mind having... Yeah, lots of wall posters. Professionally printed or if they sell them, getting some and having them framed. Um, they also have like these, you know, just shop tidbits and idioms. Uh, and they're they're just really smart to read. Um, things you wouldn't think about, like putting a light bulb under your machine in the winter. Yeah. Keep it at a constant gradient. <laughs> That's right. And uh, the one I really liked was um, the sort of white paper slash post of how they were lapping these uh, calibration spheres. And um, they more or less did them on the most rudimentary type of equipment. I think it was a Bridgeport head and bunch of other accessories that they developed but i found that the free transfer of knowledge uh was it was very refreshing you don't see a lot of um precision companies whether they be machine builders or uh, suppliers to precision um, industries they don't share information very regularly and these sort of white papers, it's it's almost like a, a whole textbook worth of information just sitting there online for free. Yeah, two very good resources. And I think a lot of us take for granted how, how hard it is to compile that stuff. Ah, it's definitely time-consuming. For this episode's machine tool segment, we're going to be looking at three Japanese grinder manufacturers. We're looking at a specific model from Okamoto called the SQG100. We'll be looking at Taiyo Koki and also one of my favorite grinder manufacturers, Nagasi Ai. 
So the first machine up is the Okamoto SQG100. Uh, this is what caught my eye about it is it's probably the first novel idea in machine frame design for a surface grinder since the surface grinder. Uh, you tend to see basically saddle or column type grinders where the table moves in Z or the wheel head moves in Z. Uh, and then everything else is more or less the same. Uh, so what they've done here is they've developed a surface grinder which can grind three sides of a cube or a square or a flat plate even square within one micron. And it does it without moving the part. Uh, other than reciprocating. It's not like a five axis. It's uh, it's clamped and then the wheel moves around it. And how they did that is it's uh, basically a column style grinder, but they've tilted the head up and let's see what axis would that be? The A axis. And then they've swiveled it a corresponding amount in the C axis. So it's I don't know the exact angle, but it looks like maybe 15 degrees each way. Yeah, it does. And it looks as if they've taken off the guards and moved a bunch of the machine frame components specifically for that. And so you might be wondering, well, why have they done that? What it allows them to do is they can now dress the bottom of the wheel uh, parallel to the flat table surface, and then they can dress that corner... Not the side, but rather the corner, since the wheel's on an angle, they could dress it uh, perpendicular to the table. And so they can grind on the face and the the y-axis side. Well, no, it wouldn't be y-axis. Uh, I guess it'd be the back side of the part in reciprocation mode. And then they can go to the front edge of the part and vertically stroke and grind that face. So in one clamping, they can hit all three sides. And technically, you could then flip the part over and grind it full parallel to thickness. Mm. But I suspect the way Okamoto envisioned this is you would just achieve squareness and flat datums on this machine and then take it to a more traditional grinder to hit your, your thickness dimension. So have you ever seen a concept like this before? No. I have seen cells where machines are just squaring up blocks, but it's usually done through moving the workpiece, whether it's in some kind of uh, uh, NC-controlled uh, rotary head, or what's also as common is using 3R or ROA fixtures and rotating the work 90 degrees and then grinding that last face. Uh, I've mm -hmm. seen all of that done, but uh, nothing ever quite like this. Yeah, that's right. I've seen that. I think Herman Schmidt makes that squaring system. Um, yes. And the closest thing to it being sort of automated as if, you know, this machine is automated um, was when they attached a robot that could just take, a, take that uh, fixture out of the 3R chuck and then rotate it 90 degrees and put it back in and the grinder could just grind away that last face but this seems to be a completely new approach to um the the art of squaring i guess and so i've got a question why did they have to tilt the spindle why couldn't they just leave it uh square to the world well you you actually probably could have uh but it would have been a side wheeled edge which would have gave you that blancher ground look and it also isn't quite as effective as a way to remove material. Uh, so by tilting it just even 15 degrees, the grinding parameters are more like that of traditional surface grinding than they are a Blanchard grind kind of mm -hmm. style. Mm -hmm. uh, you see that a lot in cylindrical grinding. If you're grinding something mm -hmm. that has a shoulder, they'll kick the wheel spindle on an angle and they'll, they'll grind in one setup both that shoulder and the uh, the diameter. And so they're taking that same concept and applying it to grinding uh, flat surfaces. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one thing that's sort of, uh, I guess, different about this machine is that if you, if you try to envision it as a 
standard flat surface grinder. It doesn't make too much sense. Um, the, because to, to grind that last face square, uh, the one that you'd never usually see done on a traditional surface grinder, the, the work has to rise to the center line, to the horizontal center line of the wheel. Um, the work ends up being a lot higher than you'd expect for a standard surface grinder. Yes, it's probably one wheel width off of the table. Uh, yeah. It's really elevated as a result. That's and right. I kind of question how effective um, the the machine would be at stroking up and down vertically like that over time. Um, that's a lot of weight reciprocating. Um, mm-hmm. And I these aren't even on the U.S. Okamoto's website. Um, the rep I have didn't seem to know about them. So this might not be one of those machines that's really sold a lot. It might have just been a proof of concept mm. or something like that. But uh, it, it was very interesting to see somebody looking at new ways of doing things and surface grinding because really there there hasn't been a lot of that. Any mm. advancements in surface grinding have been through accessories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess pushing the machines to their limit um, from an application perspective. Uh, yeah. But yeah, nothing kinematically sort of like this. Did you, um, as a side note, did you did you break Okamoto when you inquired about this machine? I kind of knew that would happen, um, but I was talking to some Okamoto reps about another machine, and I brought this one up just kind of see where it'd get me. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I just anymore. I'm starting to learn like, oh, they don't know this machine exists in their own company, so I just yeah. leave it at that. I love that. I love that. That's my favorite part of finding these obscure machines is uh is the inquiry within the company and you almost find that you can create you could probably get someone fired if you asked about the right machine (laughs) another question that um is sort of related to what we were talking about with the work being so high up is the fact that the stroke of the machine has to be much higher in in that vertical axis than a standard surface grinder would have to be because obviously the work the wheel has to still be able to touch the the um the table but then it also has to rise up above the stack that you've now created and grind whatever's on top so do you think they've reduced the maximum workpiece size that the grinder's able to grind what i think they did is this is built off the frame of uh, one of their larger um It'd be like a 16 by 32, which would be 500 by 800 millimeter or 400 by 800 millimeter grinders. And because of the wheel having to be in an odd position, the work having to be up high and needing the the space on the end of the stroke for the wheel to reciprocate up and down, the effective work size for such a large grinder looks to be around... Uh, Eight or uh, two hundred millimeters by maybe three hundred millimeters. It's a it's a small tool room size grinder workpiece, but on a very large floor grinder. So uh, definitely doesn't doesn't take up or take advantage of the machine size. But one thing I did like that they're doing is they've incorporated probing into measuring the work, figuring out how much stock to remove. And you're you're seeing that a lot with Z, or um, scratch that. You're seeing that a lot with uh, depths on grinders now. That's almost low hanging fruit is to probe the part and then probe the chucked atom and figure out how much to remove. But they're doing that in all three axes on this part. Yeah, it does seem uh, like they've gone all out in terms of concepts. Uh, on this machine and obviously you've got the automatic dressing to get those paths square but I'd, I'd love to see this as a sort of uh, standard or run-of-the-mill uh, grinding machine in their in their machine catalog but I'm, I'm not sure if it will take off only because so much infrastructure has been built around a standard um, sort of tool room sized machine that grinds flat and not only that you'd probably have to retrain a bunch of uh, seasoned tool makers and uh, that might seem like an easy task because it's simplifying the job but it's not that 
easier of a task when you have to restructure a whole company's um, workflow of how to create square and flat parts. Yeah, and then the other thing to consider is like even most of the grind shops I deal with, uh, they don't own a lot of CNC grinders because they have very accurate grinders that have been paid for for 40 years. Mm. So it's not the most effective way to do it when you do it manually, uh, but they don't have six-figure grinders they're buying. Mm. So you see these labor-intense ways of doing things, which still works out for them from a bottom-line perspective. So here's another question. How easy is it to automate grinding? Eh, depends on, like, your most low-hanging fruit is, you know, flat and parallel. That's that's pretty approachable, in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. Really, if you're shooting for, like, plus or minus 10 micron tolerances, it's almost something that you can set it and forget it and... Uh, not have to worry about too much it's when you get into things like ribbing and slotting uh stop grinding uh you get you start to look at anything outside of flat it gets a little more troublesome and what about in terms of grinding parameters in the in the actual cut uh you always have the issues with wheel condition and the dress and I guess to less of a degree how true it is on on the arbor, but I guess the way the reason why I'm asking the question is because this machine is so advanced and it's so um, so heavily concept driven that I feel like it would be heading down an automation route where you could just slap something on either with a robot or with some sort of uh, loading solution and walk away from the machine. But is that possible with with this sort of uh, with, with the complexities of grinding in terms of the actual cut condition. Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> the problem with robotic loading is it almost has to be palletized. It's very hard to robotically load onto a magnet. Yeah. Okay. Because the magnet has to be cleaned in between each part because there's so much accumulated swarf on it, mm-hmm. and so there are some pallet changing grinders now, uh, but. Uh, yeah, for for unattended part loading, it's not something you see a lot because each pallet has to have its own magnet, and all of a sudden a pallet changer has half a million dollars mm. of tooling in it. Yeah, yeah. Our next grinder manufacturer we're going to be looking at is Taiyokoki. Uh, they have recently been bought by DMG Mori, and that kind of caught my eye. I can't imagine a lot of these are sold, so I was a little curious as to what DMG Mori was buying them for, and I haven't found an exact answer there, but it was, uh, it was interesting just to learn more about the company through that process. They make vertical cylindrical grinders. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are usually grinders that are capable of doing both ID and OD. The wheel head can reach inside a larger bore and then come down and do ODs. That same wheel head can also tilt, so you can dress cones mm. or do, like I was saying earlier, have a tilted wheel that can dress both the OD and a shoulder. Um, so I used to run an American equivalent to this called a Springfield, and they're still mm. uh, made by Born and Koch. And so that just really caught my eye because I haven't seen anything quite this advanced. These machines have built-in tool changers. Mm. And uh, that really, really was interesting to me, um, simply because it, it allows for a lot of uh, neat processes like roughing wheels and then going to a finer finishing wheel. And and they've really elevated the platform. What did you, uh, what came to your mind when you looked at these? Uh, the DMG Mori acquisition. I know it's got very little to do with the actual grinding machine, but it... It was interesting in that corporate video how many sort of machine tool uh, components they showed being grinding, being ground on those machines. Um, and it made me wonder if DMG Mori bought Tayo Koki for uh, production because they had so many internally and, you know, they wanted to make the process of acquiring more of these machines easier or if they wanted... a a diversified sales portfolio because 
you do see some DMG Mori's, um, especially those larger, uh, I think they're the DMU, possibly, or maybe, I'm, I'm not sure about their designations, but you see some... Gr- their built-in grinding function. That's right, and they have the acoustic sensors and the automated dressing and so on. So it does seem like there is a very small amount of overlap. So it, it just, it's one of those things that I'm curious about. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in, in one of those board meetings in Japan where they decide to buy a company like this. Um, and I, back on the sort of grinding side, I found that that orientation, the vertical spindle, um, but internal and external grinding, very interesting because from a heavy or large part loading perspective, it would be quite easy. You know, the the top of all these machines is quite open, so you could get a gantry or a crane in uh, very easily. But then that sort of gets flipped on its head when you look at their lineup and they've got a tiny and absolutely uh, miniature size grinding machine that's in the same orientation did you want to talk about that oh yeah um this thing's probably it's smaller than a phone booth robo drill i bet it's under 800 millimeters wide um and it almost looks like it was built with no side access so i'm guessing it's meant for some kind of inline production but um i know vertical format turning is really popular in the automotive industry for for kind of short components. And so mm-hmm. the only thing I could think is that they they support that industry to some extent. But mm-hmm. uh, I've only ever known the vertical format grinding for kind of large machine build parts. Yeah, it's uh, on their website, they say it's 600 millimeters wide. And that's, you know, you just got to laugh. That's, <laughs> that's nothing. And uh, they've got some fairly impressive, actually, for that sort of size of machine, they've got a fairly impressive... Um, part size they're up to 75 millimeter id and 100 millimeter od uh, as well as 80 millimeters tall in terms of id and about the same in od so if you think about it you know not many machines can boast those sort of um those sort of scales of parts for the scale of the machine proportionally uh, at least in this very small size so um, I'd love to see one of these in action, and I don't think they'd be shown at a trade show just because of how niche they are. But if someone does know what these really small USG ones they're called are used for or the use case, um, please let us know. Yeah, and if you're looking to see more about the Toyo Koki, uh, DMG Mori has a really nice video kind of introducing them to the lineup. Um, and it really shows how versatile some of the larger machines are. Uh, it's worth a watch. We'll uh, we'll post some of the clippets and uh, a link in our, our Instagram. And one thing I want to bring up, actually, in that video, you see something that's very uh, sort of parallel or common in a lot of high-end machine tool building in Japan, which is um, the process of how these machines are built. And there's a lot of hand scraping. There's a lot of geometric, like focus on geometric geometric accuracy of the machine. And uh, there's a lot of uh, sort of, and and I saw this when I went and saw the Makino factory in Singapore, where they borrowed actually in Japan as well, where they borrowed a lot of these concepts um, from general Japanese machine tool building, which which is sort of like batched or uh, production line production of these machines. And uh, what that means is that you'd have one machine that would move along the production line to the end of the hall and would slowly get more and more assembled. Um, and that's, I found that fascinating because that concept is usually reserved for higher production volumes for these machines. Uh, and I just wonder how many machines these guys would actually sell. But yes, as Adam said, watch the video. It's fascinating and it's a really good insight into how um, these quite incredible grinding machines are made the last machine tool manufacturer we'll be talking about is the grinder manufacturer nagasi i uh they used to go by nagasi integrex i'm not really sure what they go by now but uh so they are probably the premier 
surface grinder builder, but they're also more just a kinematic frame builder who just so happens to attach surface grinding wheels to their machine. Um, a lot of their machines don't do any grinding at all. They actually get diamonds put on them and they do single point ruling. Mm. And they, they built such a good frame that that's the kind of work that they could do. So you can imagine if they could do lens style single point ruling when you put a grinding wheel on, tends to be very good grinding work as well. But uh, just kind of looking through their lineup, they have some more, you know, basic grinders, which are very good when you look at their ways. They're a double V format, but the Vs are probably twice the surface area as their competitor. But the the model that kind of caught my eye is their high-speed reciprocating SHS. So... I've been looking at surface grinders, and of the three I'm looking at, the one that reciprocates the fastest in a 12 millimeter stroke, it can reciprocate 250 times a minute. Hmm. And so that's pretty nice for for doing a lot of carbide forming. This machine in a 20 millimeter stroke can reciprocate 2,000 times a minute. Wow. And uh, that, that I've just never seen anything quite like that. And it's also, you can you can equip these as full three-axis machines, meaning you don't have to grind flat. You can grind convex or concave mm. shapes or, or even, you know, very elaborate shapes. And uh, why you see a little bit of that with other machine tool manufacturers, they've really embraced it. Mm. What fascinated me was uh, the, the whole range the whole suite of uh, machine sizes that they catered for and so you see these it's it's actually fascinating you have to go on the website and look at the look at the examples and also the machines uh, lineup they do but they have these machines that are meters in length um, the SGC series I believe uh, that are still that sort of uh, column type construction and then they also do the double column type, which is uh, what you'd more commonly see for grinding castings for machines and things like that. But then they make a tiny sort of tool room size, which is the SGW, I believe, or maybe the SGK, which is slightly large. So they, they cover every single range of high precision um, grinding machine. But what's What's fascinating to me as well as a brand is that they don't sort of stick to just um, one industry segment. So I find that a lot of these surface grinders, they're sort of pigeonholed into um, doing mold and die work for plates and uh, I guess tooling as well. But you see silicon wafer polishing machines and... uh, what I can only assume as um, gauge block lapping machines uh, so that they've got the full suite. They seem to be, as you said, um, a solution provider for high accuracy kinematic frames. Yeah. And uh, there's a pretty interesting video talking to the inventor or founder of the company. And that seems to be his drive as solving problems. Um, He was brought in for, a lot of early engineering problem solving when Japan started building telescopes for space exploration. And mm. a lot of the, the company's work was in lapping telescope lenses. And that that just seems to be the underlying trend is they don't they don't necessarily worry about what type of work they do, just if they can solve the problem for the customer. So what type of uh, application examples stood out to you? Well the the high speed reciprocation really stood out to me because when when you can reciprocate that high you could take a lot less cut per reciprocation yet still within the same time constraints remove the material and so what happens is then you get a a lower cusp height if you're doing like a radii you're free forming which is nice, but mm-hmm. on also you, you get a little better wheel life. Uh, your wheel isn't wearing as much, so you can go more more parts between dressing cycles. Um, and 
they are also a on the high speed reciprocation they are a hydrostatic guideway machine um and a lot of their competitors are still on hydrodynamic ways or uh, v-way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh so that kind of stands out a lot to me but um even even just the considerations for the process all of their machines are stainless steel guarding um I can't tell you how many like couple year old surface grinders I've seen with rusted out wheel covers, and it's it's really frustrating um, because the the aluminum oxide coming off the wheel just kind of sandblasts the inside of that wheel cover, mm-hmm. and then they get put away wet basically, and then you know it's just a matter of time till rust starts creeping in, um, and <laughs> they seem to understand that and. The, the whole machine's basically, from a covering standpoint, is stainless steel. It seems as if they've really thought about every single um, design consideration on the machine, not just in terms of the kinematic accuracy and the, the process requirements, but also in terms of the actual daily use of the machine. And uh, w- the one thing that sort of stood out to me in that vein was with those... Um, uh, lapping machines and the super super precision uh, silicon wafer m- polishing machines they're all still very accessible they're very um user focused and experience focused human centric design is what they sort of um probably follow and the there is there isn't actually a need for that when you look at those really niche applications because they're probably in production lines and so on but yet they still had that as a design consideration. One of the things that caught my eye is on their their nano machine for the rule grading. It's an open top, and usually, like you get to that type of machine, and there's a lot of emphasis on controlling the ambient temperature inside the machine. Mm. Um, like Kugler mm. does a very good job of that. And, uh, mm. So I was like a little, oh, that's weird that they've made it an open top. Uh, but then you start looking at their facility through some of these photos and you really get it. Like, um, that's one of the interesting things is how forthcoming they are with process information on their website. But you also see like in their facility photos, they have uh, downdraft ceilings where cold air is just making a constant curtain from the ceiling to the floor. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then, Mm -hmm. then you realize, oh, that's why it's an open top machine. They don't, uh. They don't worry about keeping the machine ambient. They keep the entire facility at the same temperature. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I went and toured uh, a university about, so I want to say two years ago here in Sydney that just um, commissioned a, like a really new building dedicated towards, uh, it, was, uh, it was actually nanoscience. So they did Adam... Um, Adam Force microscopy and all sorts of really, really crazy high precision stuff, but not in the manufacturing sphere. And they had one room that was uh, isolated, the slab, the entire room um, was isolated from the rest of the building, but not just in terms of um, just, you know, pouring a new slab and putting putting some silicon around the groove and, and calling it a day. They actually went to bedrock, which was in this case about 15 meters deep. So it was quite a ways to drill um, to get to the bedrock and create these concrete pylons. But then uh, cut the bedrock. So the bedrock was uh, isolated from the rest of the bedrock around. And I think they did about 10 meters or something and then filled the void with silicon. Um, So... You you can really go to massive lengths to uh, uh, creating a perfect environment for these ultra precision machines, and the the reasoning behind why the university did that was that there was a subway system about ten kilometers away that was causing vibrations that they could pick up. So they tried absolutely everything to get to get away from um, any sort of vibration and parasitic vibration in the floors and. Yeah, it seems like this factory where they where they make these machines is in that same vein. Well, having ground 
on the same floor as a stamping facility. I get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I really liked the micro-machining examples that they gave. Um, and one that really caught my eye was uh, a fly-cutting example. And obviously, we've talked about fly-cutting on the podcast previously. Um, and it is strange for fly-cutting to be done on a surface grinder. Um, not so strange when we've just explained that it's a kinematic frame, not necessarily a grinder. But what was extra strange was that apparently on this website, it's a free-form surface and it's being fly-cut. Uh, fly so I don't know how they achieved that, but it's, it's quite interesting to see. Where, uh, where am I looking for this? I'm curious. <laughs> Go to Machining Examples on their website and okay. it's the second row down. It says cutting on a freeform surface in, and in brackets fly cutter. And so it looks like they're ah. doing a... Um, uh, yeah. I don't know how to explain it actually for the listeners, but... what What's interesting about their machining examples is the mirrors are the boring parts. Like everything's reflective. Uh, very <laughs> reflective. The, the really interesting parts are the holographic tricks of the eyes. Yes. Where yes. They're, they're reflecting different colors and making things look 3D when they're not. Yeah, so if you go down a little bit more, there's one example called Super Precision Fresnel Lens Mold Process. Um, and uh, that's sort of in the same line as a um, sort of like a ruling engine where they're creating grooves and the width and the depth of the groove uh, correlates to um, uh, the specific wavelength of light. And um, what you can do with these ultra-precision applications is if you vary the depth of the groove with a known increment, you can actually change the color of the holographic uh, image in reference to all the other grooves. And so you can step down in like, you know, 100 nanometer increments um, and get a, just the whole rainbow, but all at the same time. That really impresses me. I wonder if there's a tolerance on the print for color. You have to be this <laughs> shade to this shade. Yeah. Oh, imagine seeing that, waking up one morning. I just want to go back to bed. <laughs> uh, but just uh, if you have... 15 minutes, I really encourage you to go to Nagasi's website and just be in awe. Um, they've really taken grinding to the to the top, and it, it's worth a little time out of your day to, to see just what can be done. In our last segment, we like talking about our precision problems, the issues that Adam and I have had during the week or the past month, or maybe they've been brewing for a long, long time, um, and how we've solved them. So this week's precision problem for me uh, was quite a sad one, actually. Uh, I bought a Micron 79 gear hopping machine that was produced, I believe, somewhere in the early 70s from in Switzerland and imported to Australia left in its uh, original packaging grease and never touched, never run, full set of accessories, uh, really one of those kind of barn finds. And uh, so I, I caught wind of it about a month ago that it existed and I purchased it um, sight unseen. Uh, obviously had some photos from the seller to see how it was going to be packaged and all the rest. And during its trip from Melbourne to Sydney, which is about a thousand kilometers, an incident occurred and the micrometer adjust that sort of sticks out from the rest of the machine uh, got sheared off and uh, it took a casting in its, in its uh, process of destruction as well. Um, and the casting was just holding that micrometer um down onto the slide slideway so uh, thankfully there was no other damage and it was probably the best part of the machine 
to have broken because it was uh, the most dated in terms of accuracy. It was a, a 10 micron graduation manual sort of uh, analog micrometer that could be nicely replaced with something digital. And so this is where the precision problem comes in, was how do you fix that? You can't buy the spare parts that don't exist. Micron is a company that makes gear hobbing machines, doesn't exist anymore. Uh, so spare parts are out of the question and you can't really find new old stock stuff either because these machines were um, they were used extensively industrially and when they when they broke another machine was just put in it was very rare for spare parts to be made uh, for these sorts of machines so the only solution that was left for me was to re-engineer uh, the casting that was holding the, the little micrometer and put in a new micrometer spindle um, and you obviously have a couple of choices. You can put something in that's analog, just like, uh, just like the, the, you could put something in analog uh, that came with the machine, um, or you could put in a really nice Mintotoyo micrometer. And that's what I've sort of chosen as my option. And the fascinating thing for me was looking at the design recommendations of how to install these Mintotoyo Digimatic um, I guess you could call them like single-ended micrometers. And uh, the thing that stood out for me was the clamping or the fixturing method of these of these micrometers. And so depending on the size of, of uh, which option you get, the load rating axially for these micrometers is insane. So they have a little collar that, that you can fixture on um, and it's either smooth or it has a thread. So obviously the thread you can sort of... Um, put a nut from the other side and the nut falls into a counterbore so everything can fit in flush um, with the smooth uh, collars you can have a set screw that just uh, pins the micrometer there or you can have like a lens wrench setup or a split collar setup that um, clamps like a collet all the way around and the recommendations on the design side for the split collar setup are about 900 kilograms axially before the micrometer starts not liking it. And for the uh, uh, the threaded or the threaded nut style, it was in the order of tons. And it was, depending on the model, between two and three tons of axial force. So this stood out to me that such a high precision application for a micrometer, right, could withstand su such um, immense axial forces. So um, long story short, I bought one on eBay and in the next two or three weeks, we're going to see uh, how it all turns out. But I'd, I'd assume that at those load ratings, uh, you're going to experience some more interesting phenomenon phenomenons um, than just the, the risk of stripping the, the, the screw on the micrometer. So... You're probably going to get deflection and other, you know, buckling of the uh, actual micrometer spindle. Yeah, you'll have to put a T-handle on the back of your thimble for more torque. <laughs> yeah, probably. It'll turn into a C-clamp. <laughs> but for your application, it really doesn't need that much weight, right? You're just surprised at how much they can handle. Correct. Well, I, I, was, I was cautious because there are two uh, fairly large springs that um, sort of pull down the micrometer against um, against the slideway, so it's there's always mm -hmm. contact, and um, they're pretty hefty springs. They're not, you know, there's probably like maybe fifty kilograms of force, and so that's why I initially even looked. Um, I was just wondering what the maximum load capacity was because I didn't want to be close to it or even, you know, half of it. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Since it's just positioning, um, once you do end up finding, you know, adjusting rather the position of the slide you clamp the slide way down so there's no force going directly into the into the spindle of the micrometer anyway well that makes sense i we've used a couple micrometer thimbles and dies and you know they have a few hundred pounds of spring force pushing back on them um, never really saw any problems but never the digimatic ones so i was wondering if they had any uh any mm. fragility being the digital type but uh doesn't seem like they do but it's sort of your fault that I went down the Digimatic route um, because you had a little accident, didn't you? 
Yeah, I, uh, I dropped my trusty uh, Digimatic depth gauge. And uh, it kind of split into several pieces. And I got a new one. And I take it you fancied that? Yeah, I really like that. <laughs> <laughs> I just like the idea of um, buying like half a micrometer, more or less. And uh, the digital readout was something that always drew me to the Mitutoyo range of micrometers because it's just so easy to read. Um, and so I said, oh, why don't I just use that instead of... And it was actually just perfect timing that you dropped yours and I dropped mine. I would like to uh, buy one of the... They make a non-rotating anvil variety of head. And I would like to yes. build one of my shallow diameter gauges where the uh, the stationary anvil can be adjusted with a digital micrometer. So you would set it like at a five inch standard. And if I needed to measure a shallow counterbore at five 200, I would adjust to 200 with the micrometer head. So instead mm-hmm. of having to constantly build block stacks to calibrate to, I could just have something like the uh, more calibration standards that they use to uh, set pitch mm. length on the screws of their jig grinders, and I would I would use that to kind of zero out the gauge at a, a known increment. But uh, yes, uh, that one's been on the back burner for about a decade now. So. <laughs> uh, who knows? One one day, and you'll need it, and then it'll be done in a week. Yep, that's how it typically goes. And what about your precision problem? Uh, kind of an odd one. Uh, I was doing a new customer part, and it was, I can't show it unfortunately, but I'll try to be as descriptive as possible. It was a laser cut blank, and in four spots on this blank, I was cutting in an insert pocket for something that is essentially a part-off insert. You, you're familiar with like the lathe part off inserts, how you have the little tool that kind of wedges them out of the pocket. Yeah, every insert manufacturer makes their own version. Yeah, uh, so it's basically that, only the insert uh, is the V, you know, those sit in like a kind of a inverse V pocket, double V. Yes. At the, the narrowest spot of the V on the blade, it's uh, 0.8 millimeters. Oh, so wow. small. very, very, very small insert. And uh, from that perspective, it wasn't difficult. I mean, I run way smaller tooling than that. So I uh, I get the job in and I'm looking at it, but the laser cutting is not very consistent. Like, um, mm. I guess it'd be akin to cutter comp on a mill is varying. So the way I had these fixtured was on a sign chuck magnetic a new one i got from herman schmidt and so the bottom corner is kind of uh becomes the datum like you slide them up against the rib and turn on the magnet and each individual part was very different from the next from that bottom corner Mm. to where the insert actually was the insert pocket so i i had to be able to touch off each one, so to speak, on not only the x-axis, but also the tool depth. And mm-hmm. that was that was a real problem because there, there was no consistent surface to speak of. And there was some camber in the laser cut. Um, mm. It wasn't exactly straight. And so I, I stoned off the bottom of the surface just to kind of get them to sit on the magnet flat, but then found that the the pre-laser cut pocket areas were varying in depth. So I I couldn't just probe a corner and run it. It wouldn't have came out right. And so what I ended up on felt crude at the time, but it actually worked very well. Uh, My end mill was 0.1 millimeters smaller than the laser cut slot. And so I literally just eyeballed it into that slot. And I had enough stock, I could afford to be, you know, a little bit off. But uh, with that much gap, I felt like it was pretty well centered. So I just eyeballed it and set my x-axis at the center of the slot. And then there, I brought the end mill down to the bottom of the slot. 
and kind of eyeballed it and set my z-axis and then programmed from the center bottom of the pocket and uh it worked perfectly and i i felt like it was a really crude process but in retrospective it for aligning non-precise parts into the machine, it worked really well. Um, the only problem was I only have a hand loop, and it was a pretty small feature, pretty small tool in a not well-lit machine. So uh, I had to have my head way in the machine, and oil was dripping in my hair. and Just in general, it was gross. So uh, video microscope might be on the uh, list of things to look at. Yeah, setting location and... Uh... I guess even tool height optically is underrated. Um, I think that your eye is actually far more accurate than you give it credit for. And especially if you've got a condition like yours where there's so little uh, wiggle room that you can actually pick up 10, 15 micron difference between you know uh, being too far left or too far right uh, in that slot, for example. And... Uh, yeah, it's it's funny because under magnification, um, sometimes the the mental processing that you can attribute to the problem can actually be really beneficial. Like a, a vision system is fairly dumb; it just it sees what the shadow sees. But because you can move your head around and tilt, and um, I guess inspect the parallax error and uh, go go and negate shadows and oil films and things like that um you can get a very clear picture of what's actually happening in that slot yeah and i could also apply a little mental averaging as well Mm -hmm. the slot walls weren't perfectly vertical and they were very lumpy uh, as most laser cut parts are and they looked they looked like good laser parts but when you when you start getting into you know real small features it gets a little crude. Um, that's just the nature of that process. But uh, because I was just eyeballing it, I can I could give it a little judgment one way or the other. Yeah, I know that uh, when Marvin from Kern was cutting uh, the hair with the ten micron end mill, he had his video microscope set up uh, to inspect the. Uh, from what I understand, the cutting process and possibly even touching off. He might not like me saying that, but um, he also kindly uh, sorted out a inspection, a piece of inspection equipment uh, for Mycone, which was a spindle-mounted uh, microscope. So you could put a, um, I, th- I think, I think it's going to be either twenty-five or thirty times microscope into the spindle of into the spindle of the cone so it's got a direct mount hsk interface and you can inspect very small holes that your probe um just you know has no chance like you can't get a 0.5 millimeter probe to probe a 0.8 millimeter hole or you know even smaller 0.2 millimeter hole Uh, and uh, it's funny because they sold the microscope as an accessory with the with the um sort of earlier evo machines the hspcs but as marvin was saying they haven't sold one or used one or touched one or thought about one for the last 10 years so uh, i don't know why but it seems like a very useful piece of equipment one of the sips i ran had a microscope that you could put in the spindle and i found it really helpful not just for picking up small holes or uh pen pricks but uh scribed lines even um we did a lot of castings and it wasn't unusual to blew up and scribe a height on the surface gauge and then work to that and uh i i found just using the uh mm. the crosshairs to set like a distance from a scribed line to be really fast but i remember one of the the smallest sips they made like the mp1h it had a microscope built into the head, and it was an offset distance from the spindle. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought that was really neat. Like, you could set work mm. and then offset your digital readout so much on the datum. Like, it was maybe like an even 75 millimeters or something. Yeah, Killian has one of those on his uh, modded Asiera, uh, not Asiera, sorry, Sixus 101. And um, he's got it in an eccentric bushing so that 
you can like it's very difficult to to know where the center of an optical instrument like that is um so you drill a hole or you bore a hole and then you bring your microscope over a set amount and you adjust the centric bushing and uh you can line up the center of your microscope very very accurately and uh another you know fantastic application if you have a high precision machine like a sip or a you know, something CNC like a Yazda or a Kern or whatever is that you can turn it into a, a very, very accurate profile projector um, with the right lighting. Um, you you can leave the workpiece clamped and take direct measurements um, of your workpiece between like two hole centers, for example, or if you use the scribe lines between two lines. And obviously there's limits with accuracy and you never really want to be using the same machine to measure your part as you did make your part because you you can um, attribute a lot of errors to to your measurement uh, but it's it seems to be such a handy sort of uh, piece of equipment and we've reached the end of episode eight of the precision microcast thanks for tuning in guys uh, as always really appreciate it and i really appreciated the sort of uh, really nice feedback that we've got um, after our small hiatus between episode six and seven, and it encouraged us a lot. And uh, we we got our bums off the ground and started recording episode eight straight away. So uh, thanks for the feedback, and we really look forward to hearing more from you guys. See you in the next one. Bye.